Sapos Security SOS with Paul Declan and Fraser Howard. Think of this not really as a webinar, but treat this as a, an NPR or a BBC Radio 4 programme where uh, I'll be interviewing an expert and let me immediately go over to introduce this chap. Fraser is a really smart guy. He's also great at explaining stuff. Now, Fraser, you are a principal threat researcher, which means you have an interest in everywhere that cyber criminals hang out and the sort of things they do and how to stop it. Yes, yeah, so I've worked at Sophos Labs for 11 years and I've kind of specialised in a variety of areas during that. But I take a pretty keen interest in all, all types of malware and all types of threats that people are exposed to. So the reason that we wanted to do a, a, a webinar today specifically about botnets is that, understandably, the world's very excited about ransomware at the moment because that's malware that is quite common, can be quite devastating and is very much in your face. But botnets take a, a slightly lower key approach with the aim of doing cybercrime to more people over a longer period of time. So I thought what we do today is go through a formula we followed in earlier webinars, which is we'll look at the what they are, how they work, and in there I'd like to look at you know how they've evolved historically, how, how they've kind of tried to stay ahead of defenses, and you know why the crooks love them and what we should do about them. So let me start by asking you, when we say bot and botnet or zombie malware, why those words and what do they mean? So that's a good question to start with. So a bot... Basically, a bot is a program that's running on a, on a victim's machine that enables the bad guy to deliver some form of command, um, some form of automation that ultimately will net that cybercriminal some money, some profit. So bot, it, it's, it's sort of shorthand for robot, isn't it? Essentially, it's, 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 it's an automated program that the user is completely unaware of running on their machine. The bad guy or bad guys are able to control it and use it to deliver whatever payload they choose. So with ransomware, you invite the malware in by fair means or foul. It could come in on, via an exploit or it could be in some believable email. You run it and bang, all hell breaks loose and you get the ransom demand. With a bot, what happens is this robot software sort of vanishes into the background where it doesn't really get in the way. And every now and then it wakes up and says, hey, the crooks want me to send a million spam, so I'll do that. Exactly that. So the better bots, the, the more sophisticated bots... Careful with will... that word, better. <laughs> I know what you mean. The Worse more... to our listeners, better to the crooks. The more sophisticated bots <laughs> will go to quite great lengths to kind of stay sub-radar. So the longer they can be present on a machine without that user or without software on that user's machine being aware of its presence, then ultimately the more profit the bad guys can do. The more data they can steal, the more, the more information they can harvest. Fundamentally, they're trying to stay on that machine for as long as possible. So the alternative name, zombie malware, that's meant to reflect the fact that it's sitting in the background and will wake up on command and do something secretively that, that you might not even notice. Yes, in fact, you say on command. Actually, it tends to work in that rather than kind of this, this sleeping program waiting for somebody to come from externally and ping it, what you tend to find is the bot itself will periodically connect back out to the internet to get those commands and to see what it needs to deliver next. Right, so that's the bot. And then we have this term botnet. That's where this all gets multiplied out into lots of bots under control of one guy all at the same time. Exactly that. So you have lots of machines that are infected with the same or similar bots that are all connected to the, essentially the same network. 
and then the the cyber criminal can issue commands to the entirety of that network and so it could be a command specific to one machine or it could be a command that all of the infected machines will ultimately run now generally speaking assuming that assuming that the bot arrived via a poisoned attachment, you know, oh, fake invoice, you better check this out. And you open the file and it looks like a PDF and it looks like a load of garbage and you think, oh, no harm done, you exit. But in the background, it spawned this process that's sitting there quietly. Now, because you did that, unknown to you, that program, that bot, that zombie, it can do anything that you would normally be allowed to do. So you can send mail, it can send mail. You can open all your own fi- own files and go searching for your tax returns, it can do the same. It can visit websites, it can click on ads frenziedly to generate money. It can maybe even post to your Twitter account or do social media stuff. So it doesn't need to do any kind of elevation of privilege. It doesn't need an admin password. It won't necessarily pop up and give you user access control or you must enter your password like you get on a Mac. It all seems pretty innocent. The program's not obvious. And then even though it's running as you, that's more than enough for the crooks to make loads and loads of money, isn't it? Exactly that. I mean, basically, even running as a regular user, there's still lots of types of functionality, lots of different types of payload that can be delivered. Of course, many bots do have kind of mechanisms of privilege escalation, so they can run under a a higher privileged account and do more things on a machine. But a regular user um, and the permissions associated with the regular user is more than enough to achieve a lot of what they're actually after. And it's not just kind of about kind of user permissions as well. Typically, when a bot is installed on a system, if it was running as kind of evil.exe or malware.exe, it might be easy for the user or the system administrator to spot. And so bots typically will do code injection. They'll use techniques where they basically inject malicious code into existing legitimate applications so they're pretending to be those applications. And so for people that might be looking for suspicious activity on a machine, it's very hard to spot. So even a well-informed user who had things like sysinternals tools, say, and knew what to look for, it would kind of seem fairly innocent. It would be very much hiding in plain sight. It would look perfectly normal. And some bots have even gone to significant effort to essentially mask themselves from some of the common tools that are out there. For example, Netstat is a very common tool for diagnosing what running processes have um, network connections. And there's certain bots that deliberately integrate with the system in such a way as to subvert utilities like Netstat. So in other words, Netstat will be producing it out, its output and they'll be filtering it. And when they see themselves in there, they'll just delete that line. They're just telling you what you want to see and not the truth. It's a simple case of nothing to see here. Move on. So the big deal about this whole call home mechanism where the bot, instead of waiting for a crook to, to dial in, as it were, and connect in and give a command to one bot after the other, they're all, if you like, polling or calling home, almost like automatic updates for Windows or a security product or your browser, uh, maybe more frequently, that there's very little network traffic in just seeing if there are new instructions. So you're not likely to notice that. And then that also means that if you turn off your computer overnight, when you come back in the morning, the bot will pretty much light up as soon as you log in and it'll call home then. It'll pick up all the devious instructions that have been given overnight and go and process them. Pretty much every bot for the last few years has any any kind of uh, sophisticated bot as sporting some kind of configuration and web inject type functionality, which is basically um, the ability for commands, configuration data, essentially payloads, what it is that the cyber criminal wants that bot to do, 
that information will be delivered over the network. And so as, just as you say, the bot will be polling out to its call home server or servers, and then there'll be a response to that virtually always encrypted, which the bot can then decode and deliver those payloads. Now, presumably the reason that bots use encryption when they call home and download the ins what to do next, two reasons. One, it makes it less likely that you'll notice the network packets that have suspicious looking commands in. And I guess two, it stops some other jolly rogue crook taking over your botnet and feeding it instructions that you didn't want. So the crooks are kind of, they're protecting themselves from each other as well as from us. That's true. Over the years, you've seen quite a lot of cases where different groups of cyber criminals have kind of almost tried to take out each other's malware. In fact, even within the world of bots, there's the classic kind of spy versus use case yes, from, I, I think, that. five, six years ago, where spy which was kind of ironically a derivative of Zeus after the source code was leaked, had a, 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 a feature, a command, I think it was called Zeus Killer. <laughs> which existed purely to kind of take out um, any Zebbot that might also be installed on that same machine. If we go back kind of 12 years, there was a mass mailer called MyDoom. I remember it had a, it had a back door. And so it opened up a weird port and it enabled uh, any cyber criminal to upload another payload and it would just download and execute that file. And so that particular threat had a, had a, um, didn't use any sort of authentication. So when that, that threat infected machines, other cyber criminals were, were able to piggyback on that one attack. And today's cyber criminals, they're savvy to that. Just like you said, they use encryption. They want to protect their investment, and their investment is the botnet. Now, the, the other important thing about this working with a call home is it means that you're not protected by having you know, a standard home firewall. A lot of people think, oh, well, no one can connect in. All the ports are blocked. But the point is, the crook is essentially, by proxy, already on the inside. So all the requests... All the commands actually come in on the inbound channel of a connection that was established outbound. That's right. And so the malware is already running on the machine. The malware makes an outbound request, um, and then the, the cybercriminal sends these commands in via response to that request. And remember, the malware might, might even be um, injected code into your browser. So the outbound request, not only is it coming from the machine itself, it's coming from the browser, and that's absolutely normal activity. I guess in the early days of bots, a lot of bots used a thing called IRC, Internet Relay Chat. There were public servers that could do this message redistribution, and that worked really well for a while. Now, a lot of people that you talk to, they still think of bots as kind of IRC robots. But IRC is passe, right? It's not used anymore. The, the, that, the, the way the traffic looks and the sort of tools it uses have evolved significantly in the past five to ten years, haven't they? I mean, the main problem with IRC was simply the fact that it was so easy to, to detect that traffic. It was so easy for organizations, for um, home routers, for firewalls, just to, just to block that traffic because no or very minimal legitimate activity used that, those particular protocols. And so nowadays, bots tend to use HTTP or HTTPS, which is just common everyday traffic that's impossible to block outright without kind of essentially unplugging your machine from the internet. Now, in the early days of HTTP bots, obviously the, their requests didn't look much like your typical HTTP get and then a web page coming back. And I remember that some bots went to great lengths to kind of make their traffic look vaguely legitimate by, by you know, wrapping it in HTML stuff that was kind of redundant, but the average person looking at the packet would go, oh, that, that doesn't look particularly suspicious. But the problem these days is that with you know web sockets and and uh, the, the whole the use of browsers using 
HTTP or web connections as a way of generically exchanging data, not just HTML, it's much harder to, it's even easier for HTTP bots to hide in plain sight, isn't it? Essentially, blobs of data are flowing to and fro um, in perfectly normal, uninfected machines. That's, that's, that's normal practice. And so the bad guys don't need to kind of necessarily employ tricks like steganography, where they're hiding things within images or you know, sophisticated techniques where they're embedded their data within other file formats. They can just encrypt it and these blobs of data flow back and forth. We've seen perhaps, perhaps less commonly, but some more esoteric bots that have used higher level protocols for communicating. For example, bots that watch a particular Twitter feed. Yes. I mean, we see all sorts of inventive things like that. I think the main kind of limitation with that is it's, it's when you're talking about call home and you think about the fact that the, the cyber criminals want their bots to persist as long as possible on the machine, it's not just persisting on the machine, it's also that they, they require the ability to command these bots for as long as possible. And so we talk about things like uh, the reliability and the persistence of the, of the call home infrastructure. And so when you're using things like Twitter, it's a lot easier for the good guys to cut the head off and to break that form of communication. Within the configuration data that's sent through to bots, a very common kind of um, piece of information will be a new list of IP addresses to use for call home. These days, as you say, they, 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 they work in a more peer-to-peer -peer way, won't they? Where yes. one bot can actually tell others nearby, hey, here's a new place to go for instructions because the old one got killed off. Exactly. And it's all about resiliency and you know, making it much harder for the good guys to break this form of communication and therefore break the botnet. Now, it all sounds... The, the, the how does sound super complicated, but actually these days you can get into the whole botnet scene without even really knowing how bots work by going and borrowing time on somebody else's bot. It's sort of like cloud computing, but you're stealing the time and the bandwidth and the data from random people littered around the world. Yes. Over the last few years, we've seen the development of um, builder tools which people can purchase and use to build their own bots. And so they basically just you know, configure it with a few minor details, but fundamentally all the core work has been done and is sold as a software package. You, you type in, okay, list of sites to call to, what port to use, whether you want to support spamming, data stealing, password logging, and then you kind of press a button and it, what does it spew out, C source code, or does it actually generate a program that you can use directly? Typically, it generates a program that you then use directly to infect people. The downside of that is, is just that. You have to then try and infect people with that piece of malware that you've essentially bought. And so, But there are people who offer that service as well, right? Well, there are services that, and more recently, there's people who offer the entirety of the service. So you just basically use someone else's infrastructure, someone else's network and, and kind of back-end administration, if you like, to rent space within that botnet. So, so is that crimeware as a service? Essentially, it's all software as a service. And you even get a little control panel, don't you? So you can log in using a regular web browser over HTTPS or maybe over Tor, and you can go in and see how many people have I infected, how many are in the UK, how many are in the US, how many are in Canada, and you can then pick and choose, oh, well, I want to hit the Canadians, I want to hit with a banking web injects, and the guys in the UK, let's, we've got a big spam campaign we want to get out, let's use those guys. And you, you can even maybe differentiate on bandwidth available. So you can tell who's got cable, who's got DSL. You can even select on criteria like that, can't you? Yeah, one of the first things that a typical bot will send back to its call home is information like memory available, disk space available, network capacity. 
and that can be used by the bad guys to essentially kind of group infected machines into potentially maybe ideal groups of exactly how those machines want to be used. If a machine has you know exceptional network capacity, it's an absolute ripe target for doing kind of denial of service type attacks. Maybe it's a right. some sort of file server which has terabytes upon terabytes of storage. Maybe that's a good place to host a WARES site. And so the nature of the machine is obviously of great interest to the cyber criminal. All that data they've collected that was useful for running the bot can be used for future malware attacks. It can be sold on to other crooks. Yep. And it can be used for other angles of cybercrime, can't it? It could be. Maybe a good example there is, one of the, again, one of the common kind of payloads is just to enumerate all the processes that are running on a system and report that back. Or maybe specifically look at exactly what security products are running on a system and send that back. For certain organizations, if that data was sold to other cyber criminals, so those cyber criminals know what software you have running, they know what security products you run, that's valuable information. My goodness, many companies spend a huge amount of money on SIEM and inventory control to telemetry stuff to log what's in their own network. The crooks are doing exactly the same thing and they're collecting it and either sharing it or selling it or trading it. Yeah. Exactly. Now, it's also true, is it not, that almost every bot that was ever written amongst things like spamming, password stealing, hijacking web pages, fake ad clicks, they almost all have a uh, an update to the new version of this bot and download and install this completely new malware that you've never heard of before. Yes, yeah, so I've been working in kind of um, malware labs for about 15 years. And one of the questions we get pretty much every day, several times a day is, what does this do? And that question's in the old days, it was pretty easy to answer. You took a piece of kind of isolated virus or malware, Trojan, whatever it happened to be, you analyze it, you say what it did. When you think about bots, actually the, the bot, the thing that gets delivered, the thing that a machine is infected with might just be essentially a loader program. And that loader program doesn't really do very much beyond the call home. Its true functionality or the functionality of the threat only really happens when that communication with the call home is delivered. And then it starts downloading other modules self-updating, downloading and execute other payloads. Amongst the cyber criminals, they're looking to make money. So one of the common pieces of functionality is you might have a bot, a botnet with lots of machines infected with a particular bot. It might download and install other malicious software or in some cases, other potentially unwanted applications that other people profit through and they're paying money Adware for the botmaster to install their software through the botnet. You're actually making money out of installing legit software that the user didn't choose to have there in the first place. Yes. So you could still end up with weaker security, even after you've found and removed the bot. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's very common when you find a machine that's had a bot, had a backdoor, you typically find more than one thing. If you remove just that bot, there'll be other things present on that machine. It's very common to find multiple pieces of malware when you find one of these. And presumably that means that if you've been co-opted into one botnet for a while, that same crook can basically join you into another botnet that is running. Yeah, it's very hard to know how common that, that is, but in theory, yeah, that's true. And so the, the, the question of what does this do, actually to just try and answer that question, you have to analyze malware in the, in, the, in, the, in the full context of how it's being commanded, how it's being used by the bad guy. And remember, how it's being used this week by the bad guy, that might be completely different next week when additional module, some additional modules or some additional software is being distributed through that bot. It is true, is it not, that at least some surges of ransomware have happened not because of phishing, although that's the most common way that ransomware gets in, but actually somebody's got a bot, 
the crooks have made all the money they think they're going to make out of them. They've stolen every password they're ever going to use. They've riffled through all of their files. Why not take one last shot and hit you up for $675 by installing ransomware on your computer? That's surprisingly common, isn't it? It is. I mean, we see that quite a lot. I mean, it kind of makes sense when you think when a, when a, when a machine infected with bots has kind of ex- exceeded its useful life for the cybercriminal, you can see it kind of makes sense to, at, that, at that point, try and make one last ditch effort to make some money. Fraser, we've had the we've had the urgent warning from Daniela to say uh, we need to take questions now because that's what this is all about. So, Daniela, I am going to hand over to you and let's see what the audience would like to know. Thank you both. So, we've got a question here from Thomas. What is the most prevalent botnet software at the current time? Uh, it's very hard to give a specific answer to that. What makes a large botnet? I think typically botnets in the order of thousands, tens of thousands. That's a pretty decent sized botnet. Um, certain botnets, so uh, zero access from a couple of years ago was one that went into the millions. And so that's a, that's a huge number of machines that are infected and under, essentially under the command of that cyber criminal. But the numbers can fluctuate. And so for the bad guys, as I said, it's all about persistence. So one recent quite significant botnet was one called Neckers. And that's been uh, associated very strongly with spam campaigns where the spam is designed to socially engineer the user into infecting themselves with ransomware. That botnet was well into the tens of thousands through last year. And then thanks to some kind of uh, law enforcement takedown efforts was reduced dramatically in size um, at the end of last year. Um, and we saw the effects of that with the subsequent decrease in spam. So 10,000 computers, obviously that's an awful lot of resource, particularly it since it's distributed around the world. So it's, it's hard to pinpoint. You can't block list all of those infected computers. That sounds pretty big, but it can go up to millions. It can go up to millions, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Daniela, uh, what else do we have? Thanks for that. So we've got a question here from Anthony. Are PUPs and PUMs types of botnets? Pums, poors, pusses and pups. Yes, I think <laughs> what, what we talk about here is, is potentially unwanted programs, potentially unwanted applications. And I wouldn't say they're part of botnets at all, but as, just as we spoke about, these are pieces of software that might result in some profit and in most, you know, in virtually all cases, they're completely legitimate forms of software. But what is often illegitimate is exactly how they're installed. So if a user knowingly downloads it, knowingly tries to install it, knowingly accepts the end user license agreement, the, the infamous EULA, everything is, is, is rosy. If a cyber criminal pushes that installer out to, um, through its botnet and does a silent install of that application, that's obviously malicious, even though it's not necessarily the, uh, the, the creator of that program in the first place that is at all responsible for that. So that's, I think, what the, the, when you tend to associate PUAs with botnets. Daniela, back to you. So we've got a question here from Lynn. What are the best practices to avoid botnets? So I think there's a, a threefold answer. Maybe the first, the first kind of piece of best practices Avoid getting infected in the first place. <laughs> That's so, like saying to somebody, you're going to have a drug, don't have a crash. Don't have, but it, it, it is sage advice, isn't it? So how do most people get infected with a bot? With a bot? I think there's probably two key ways, either through spam, so a, a, a malicious email that's designed to social engineer you into clicking on a link or social engineer you into running some sort of um, suspect attachment. So that's some kind of phishing campaign. It could be a phishing campaign. Just by the way, uh, on Tuesday this week, we had a phishing webinar. So anyone listening, if you want to know how to resist that side of things, you can go back and listen retrospectively to that. And perhaps the second key way in which, in which uh, people get infected with bots is through exploitation. And that's typically through web exploit kits. 
things have been pretty quiet recently in terms of web exploitation, but there's still kind of an undercurrent of activities. Again, that's where um, the crooks are relying on the fact that there's a bug in your browser that could cause it to trip up and install malware without giving you any warning, but you haven't patched yet, so you're one of the guys who's at risk. Yes, and you've, you've hit the keyword there, patch. And that's all about using up-to-date browsers, disabling plugins that you don't, don't use, reducing your risk surface. So that seems like Java, Flash... Uh, PDF readers, Silverlight. Okay. Yeah. And patch your operating system and patch those applications, or better still, remove those applications. I removed Flash from my environment maybe two years ago. You haven't missed it, it have you? It, it mitigates quite a lot of risk. Yeah. I haven't missed it now. Excellent. Uh, Daniela, I think there's time for a couple more questions. Yes, lots of questions today, Paul. So, which is the largest threat at the moment and in the future, botnets on personal computers or an IoT device? That is the 64 million billion trillion dollar question, isn't it? It turns out that not only are laptops and servers and desktop computers able to run software that sits in the background calling home and doing stuff, actually many home routers, which maybe aren't patched as often or even at all, are actually vulnerable to exactly the same sort of threat where the crooks are they're basically borrowing your router, your network bandwidth. They're basically, you're giving them free hosting services. What do you do about home routers where there isn't necessarily a, a simple upgrade path like there is for Macs and Windows and stuff? Yeah, this is one of the big problems. It's hard to spot a bot running on a regular Windows machine, for example. For, for the average kind of home user, it's practically impossible to spot malware that could be running on their, on their router. So long as that malware doesn't essentially break the functionality, so they, you know, as far as they're concerned, their access to the internet still works fine, it's virtually impossible for them to be able to spot something going wrong. It does seem that IoT security, the, these little standalone devices, the attitudes to security are probably, what, 10 or 15 years out of date compared to where we are on laptops and, and servers. Yeah, and for a lot of home users, they, their, their devices come as part of their home DSL contract. And so again, if you've had if, if you have a device that you believe is out of date by several years, there's no firmware firmware update available, feel you know, contact that provider. Yeah. Ask them for a newer version of that device. They may be reluctant, but as soon as you talk about changing providers, they'll probably provide you with the <laughs> latest and greatest version of that same device, which almost certainly will be far more up to date. Daniela, if we've still got a few more questions, do you think we could go over a few minutes if there are loads of questions? Sure. So we've got a question here. What security software would you recommend for a business to help prevent these botnets? Email filtering. That can stop those fishy emails coming in that try and trick you into inviting bots into your network in the first place. Web filtering at the gateway. Excellent, because if you do miss a zombie that's inside your network and it suddenly it has to call home somehow, and sooner or later, somebody, that's going to raise an alarm and then at least you'll realize that something is happening. And on each computer or on your mobile device, again, something that looks for suspicious pro stuff that's already known to be bad, programs that shouldn't be there and deletes them, stuff that looks out for malevolent behavior. So look out for programs that try and trick other programs, each your browser, into taking on network connections, programs that try and exploit known vulnerabilities and so forth. So there's, there's a whole mix you can do both in filtering what you allow in and out of your network and actually trying to regulate what happens on each of those computers, which, by the way, may as well include servers. Thank you for that. So we've got a question here from Thomas. What is the most prevalent zero-day exploit used for exploitation at the moment? Java drive-bys, 
were big in the infection scene not too long ago. So you mentioned Java, um, and that's true probably two, maybe three years ago. That was almost certainly the number one way in which people were exploited through web exploit kits. Uh, since then, things have shifted. And for the last 12, 18 months, it's been Flash as the number one target. As I mentioned earlier on, the whole kind of web exploitation scene has gone pretty quiet over the last 12 months since kind of a, a fairly infamous kind of cyber criminal gang were taken out by law enforcement in the middle of 2016. Oracle, bless their hearts, did a brilliant thing a few years ago. They decided that the future of Java was for writing apps, not applets. In other words, for writing full-blown applications, say servers, not for stuff that goes in your browser. And by default, when you install Java, it's no longer activated in your browser. That has made an enormous difference. And the good news is it's meant that the crooks have had to search somewhere else. That was a very nice Christmas present. I believe that security <laughs> update was around the Christmas time that year. <laughs> yeah, that was true. It was. So just to finish off, I do love to quote from the Karate Kid, as Mr. Miyagi says, best way to avoid punch, no be there. Exactly. Daniela, we'll hand back to you and you can lead us out and tell our listeners what happens next. Thank you very much both. Thank you all for joining us for Security SOS Webinar Summit. At the end of the webinar, you'll be served a short survey. If you could please fill this out with us, for us. If you have any unanswered questions, please leave them here and we will get back to you with an answer. Thank you very much and have a great day.